So again, welcome everyone to the Sunday Sound of Dhamma. And as usual, going to begin with just a short meditation, about 10 minutes or so of meditation. Then I will uh, share a Dhamma talk with you. We can begin by settling into your meditation posture. Sometimes it's helpful to begin with a little bit of movement. Relaxing the body. And allowing it to come into a balanced, upright position. Releasing the belly and letting the body settle right here, right now. And turning the attention to one foot, maybe the left foot. And becoming aware of any pleasant feelings in the body. No need to make anything happen. Just beginning with the left foot and moving the attention 
upward. And noticing any place where you feel pleasant feeling. When you come to the top of the left leg, then moving down to the right foot. Checking in for pleasant feelings. And moving the attention up the right leg. at the hips, the buttocks. Beginning to move the attention up through the torso. Just checking in for any pleasant feelings. Then at some point, arriving at the left shoulder. Checking in for pleasant feelings. In the shoulder or down the left arm.
and aware of the left hand. And the right hand. Just checking in for any pleasant feeling tones. Slowly moving the attention up the right arm. Coming to the right shoulder. And the neck. Checking in for pleasant feelings. up through the head and face, all the way up eventually to the crown of the head.
Here in London, I do a little bit more walking than I would usually do at home because I walk from the place where I live to the campus of the place where I study. And it's a good 35 or 40 minute walk in each direction. And so I, uh, I enjoy that. And it means also that I'm spending a bit more time outside walking than uh, I used to. And the other day I was on my way to class. It's a few weeks ago now. And I was walking along. So it's London, you know, it's busy streets. Not super, super packed, but uh, but fairly busy. And, you know, they have these famous double-decker buses, these two-layer big red buses that are the public buses that people use to get around. And um, I was walking along and uh, kind of going in the opposite direction of the traffic. And there was a young man who was running toward the bus stop. The bus was there. The bus had arrived. And the young, there was a young man, and he's running to catch the bus. And behind him, there's these two older women who are also running to catch the bus. <laughs> It's, a, you know, it's morning time. Goodness knows, maybe they're on their way to work or something or to school also. But what happened was that, so the young man, he runs faster, right? <laughs> he got to the bus before these two ladies. Now, it's not necessary that he would, you know, we wouldn't assume that that would be the case, but that's what happened. He got to the bus first. And rather than just hopping on to the bus, what he did was he stood outside the bus where the doors were open and he gestured to the driver, hold on, hold on a minute. And so the driver stayed there for about another 10 seconds, long enough for the other two ladies to come running up and get on the bus. And I thought, oh, that's so kind of him, right? Because he could have just, you know, run up to the bus and hopped on and gotten going. But instead of that, he chose to stop for just a few seconds, just long enough to help out these other two women. Uh, 
And we don't know anything about whether they know each other or whatever. But nonetheless, it was a kindness. It was a moment. It was a moment of kindness. And I felt such mudita. I felt really good about it. <laughs> My whole, the whole rest of the way to school, I was just like, oh, that's great. You know, it's nice to see somebody do nice for so- something nice for somebody else kind of thing. And, um, and I imagine that, you know, maybe, maybe he was motivated by knowing what it's like to miss the bus, right? Like here he is, and he's about to miss the bus himself. And he's like, oh, that's not such a good feeling. And if it's not a good feeling for me, there's not a good feeling for them either. Right. So maybe there's a motivation of some compassion there. And um, so sometimes knowing our own unpleasant feelings can lead to some more compassion for other people's unpleasant feelings. Or sometimes we have to see something happen to someone else. Yeah, for or the potential for something bad to happen to someone else for that compassion to arise. So maybe that's what happened in this case for this young man, that he saw the potential for some unpleasant feeling to happen and it caused him to have some compassion for these ladies. Or a very popular story at this time of year is the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. And the Christmas carol, right? And what is it that turns Scrooge around? So Scrooge has all of these terrifying experiences with the ghosts of the past and the ghosts of the present. But it's the ghosts of the future showing him that Tiny Tim will die if he doesn't get enough heat and enough food that turns Scrooge around. that unlocks his compassion. So I I think about this in terms of the Dhamma, and in the Dhamma and the early Buddhist teachings, we have two different kinds of compassion are mentioned. So there's karuna, and karuna is 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 what we typically think of as the thought of compassion. It's the wish or the desire for other people to be free from some form of suffering. Yeah, it's that that uh, uh, intention or that hope for the world. It's that uh, aspiration, beautiful aspiration. So that's what the word karuna means. And karuna is one of the four uh, boundless qualities. And I'll say more about boundless qualities in a moment. But I just want to mention that there's another word for compassion that we see or that we typically translate into English as compassion, which is this word anukampa. Anukampa. And anukampa is the active side of compassion. So it said, for example, that the Buddha decided to get up from the seat of bliss, blissful awakening and teach. And that was his anukampa, that he, his active compassion 
led him to do something to help alleviate the suffering of other beings, even after his own suffering had been alleviated. So this young man stopping the bus, or pausing the bus for a few seconds, that was his anukampa, right? He took an active role in preventing, perhaps, the suffering of these two ladies missing their bus. So there's, that's one way that compassion, we can think about how compassion arises, right? Or that's a couple of ways, actually. There's the knowing our own inner suffering and wanting to find ways to alleviate that or prevent that. There's knowing the suffering of others and thinking about how to alleviate that or prevent that. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes we see suffering and it brings up a lot of overwhelm. Yeah. Especially if you spend a lot of time reading the news, you might end up overwhelmed. Or if you're in a caring profession where your, uh, your job is to offer compassion, and sometimes that can lead to feeling overwhelmed by the amount of suffering that you're seeing or hearing. So the other side of, uh, or you could say, one of the other practices that the Buddha offered us in the early Buddhist teachings to ensure that we wouldn't be overwhelmed is mudita, one of the other brahma-viharas, one of the other four boundless qualities. And it's this empathetic joy. It's joy that is sparked by the wholesome joy of others. So it's a reminder, actually, that if we get too hung up on one side or the other, that that tends to be out of balance. Yeah, that our practice, uh, our practice, can uh, bring us into better balance. And perhaps if we're not finding that, that that's an indicator that we need to think about some other aspects that we're not giving enough attention to. So the practice of mudita, mudita is sometimes translated as sympathetic joy, but I like the idea of empathetic joy. Particularly, again, if we contrast it with this Empathy of compassion, empathy with people's suffering is compassion, empathy with people's joy is mudita. So it helps us to have a more balanced approach. And it also helps us to find more opportunities for joy. Right? So I often say that the math in terms of mudita is very good. If you're only going to feel joy when good things happen to you, then there's a certain number of possibilities for that. 
if you only if you get the ice cream or the car or the job or the kiss hello or whatever it is that you're looking for. And you have a certain number of opportunities for that in your life. But if you feel empathy with the skillful joy of other people, then the num- the quantity of possibility, the quantity of things that could bring you joy is suddenly so much greater, right? Just think about how many possibilities. Just like that, you're walking down the street and possibilities for joy are popping up all the time. And this is, I think, very helpful, particularly when we are finding difficulty or if we are in a, in a time where we're not finding a lot of joy in our meditative practice. So if you sit down on the cushion and you're sitting down on the cushion is a little bit of a grind or you feel very scattered or you see a lot of sadness in your mind and your body or pain, there are many different things that can be less than pleasant coming up in the meditation. And that's understandable. That's quite understandable. We can't even go through uh, Norman Fisher, a very um, well-respected and longtime Zen teacher, uh, talks about going through like a dry phase in our practice where we feel like everything's, all the goodness is dried up. Uh, so we can even go through uh, periods of this. But um, but so it's good to have these other ways of finding some joy in your practice that isn't necessarily based on the meditation. It's based on other people's skillful joy. But ultimately, I think that the practice does lead us toward the possibility of finding joy within our meditative states without even any external basis at all. So this is where I'm going to talk a little bit about the Brahma Viharas. So that... Uh, literally translates as the Brahma. These are here we're talking about the Brahma realms. So the Buddha spoke about different realms of existence. They're not places exactly, they're forms of existence. And the Brahma realms are very high, very long-lived, very, very pleasant, bright, light forms of existence. And um There's a sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 99, the middle length discourse number 99, in which there is a, a, a person who approaches the Buddha asking about how to get to those realms of existence. There's a lot of desire for that. In the, in the, in the same vein, I think we hear these days about people talk about how to get to heaven. It's kind of like that how to get to the Brahma realms. And so he talks about these meditations, this Brahma Viharas. Vihara means a dwelling, a literal dwelling, as in like monastics live in a Vihara, uh, so a residence. 
but also uh, um, you could say a resting point for the mind. So the uh, there are four Brahma Viharas, so the most commonly spoken about one, uh, both by the historical Buddha and many teachers since, has, is metta, loving kindness, um, not to be confused with romantic love, but like a universal kind of kindness. And then there is karuna, compassion, yeah, the desire for beings to be free from suffering or attending to the, the fact of suffering. You could think about it in that way. And then there is mudita, the third one, mudita. Mudita is this empathetic joy resonating with the skillful joy of others. And upeka is the fourth one, equanimity. Uh, a, what could you say, a mind so vast and so balanced and so um, harmonious that it's not set off balance or set off kilter by anything. So these are very, very vast, bright mind states. The Buddha referred to them as abundant. So again, this kind of, when we think about mudita, what is mudita? It's abundant. It's plentiful. There's no shortage. And then this, this the next word that he uses is exalted, or the, it's a high state of mind. It's a relatively uh, uplifted, you could think of it as that, as meaning uplifted state of mind. And immeasurable, and this is very important. So the the descriptions, the the information, the, the very specific, literal practice instructions that the Buddha gave for how to meditate on these qualities, or meditate being, you could say, these qualities. It involves this very, very vast spaciousness of the mind. So it is these qualities are also can be seen as a way to work with the pleasantness of a particular state. So a state like enjoying someone else's joy and and have that help us to open the mind. Because it's pleasant, so the mind might be happy to hang out there and to be spacious and to experience a lot of that and an openness to that and more and more and more openness until it is completely encompassing all things. So it even is a state, once we think about mudita, this kind of uh, resonating joy, as a meditation or as a quality that we are embodying, then it goes beyond even whether it is sparked by one person or another, or whether it's deserved, when, whether one person is deserving or not of this feeling. It becomes this universal that we ourselves are a beacon for that in the world in the meditation, and off the cushion as well. So that brightness, so we can use that 
brightness and spaciousness and pleasantness of the quality to allow the mind to become more vast and more vast and more vast and more vast until it becomes boundless. Boundless. And this boundlessness is a very good, very good ingredient for concentration, for allowing the mind to become very, very focused. Right? Because it's pleasant. So the mind is willing to sort of tune out other influences and just kind of hang out there with that. Not go looking for other things that are more pleasant because this is kind of big and pleasant and bright all on its own. So the Buddha refers to this, this kind of joy that comes up in concentration. So now we're seeing how joy leads to joy, leads to joy, leads to joy. It's a very, it's a very interesting uh, way of thinking about the practice because maybe we don't actually uh, go through it that way. But uh, but it's certainly possible, and it is definitely within the scope of, of uh, the teachings that we have historically recorded there. So, so the, from the same sutta that I was mentioning earlier, from Middle Length Discourse number 99, he says, What do you think? So I'm going to ask you too. What do you think? Would, which would be better? to have brightness and radiance that depends on grass and logs as fuel, like a fire, or one fire that does not depend on grass and logs as fuel. Right? So the student replies, the student who was interested, who's interested in going to heaven and thinking, what does this have anything to do with that, right? <laughs> says, well, if it were possible for fire to burn without depending on grass and logs, then that would be better, right? And the Buddha says, then he says, PD, this kind of meditative joy that comes from stilling and settling the mind and the body, right? PD is like that. It is... Uh, Let's see if I see exactly the phrasing that he uses here. PT that's apart from sensual pleasures and unskillful qualities. So this kind of joy, embodied mental joy, that is apart from sensual pleasures and unskillful qualities, because it's just based in the meditation itself, is like a fire that doesn't depend on logs for fuel. So he's talking about this, this uh, in a way, this independence that can develop through our practice. that we can find the nourishment of the heart that we need through our practice and not be so dependent on the things that are around us for that nourishment of the heart. But you can start from that place, right? You can start from that place of using the nourishments that are around you 
really taking, drinking them in, really enjoying them, really allowing that to spark the joy in you, really allowing that to spark the pleasant feelings that will put you on the cushion, that will help your meditation to be able to settle down and be willing to be still. Right? So it's this whole process. It's not that we deny one thing in order to get to the next one. It's that we actually use the nature of our lives because we are all experiencing this in one way or another. Nobody is, has a life that is completely devoid of joy. So we use these things as fuel for our practice until we don't need that fuel anymore. And it just, and it builds upon itself. And then we can come back again and refill and refill and refill. With the mudita, with the resonating with the outer joy, or with the meditation, resonating with that inner joy. And the last thing I want to say is you can just think about uh, a little bit about what's the opposite of this feeling. So the opposite of mudita, we like to always give these contrasts, right? The opposite of mudita is envy, right? Something wonderful happens to somebody else. And for whatever reason, you can't find it in your heart to feel good about that for them, with them. So, you know, when that happens, then I think the kind of the key question is, what's the nourishment that you need in order to let go of that? Because envy is a painful state. Envy is only a state that is going to cause more suffering. But maybe there's some nourishment that you need or some letting go that needs to happen or some acknowledgement of some other pain or some other wanting that needs to happen for the envy to be relinquished and for you to be able to feel that joy, that empathy. So I hope that if you're running late for the bus, that you have some faster guy in front of you. <laughs> and if not, then that's okay too. Don't suffer too much if you're late for work or school. And um, and yes, and just remember, just remember that um, that our practice is about balance. We need to both be able to look towards suffering. 
but we also need to be able to look toward joy and not and not get overwhelmed by either one of those two to really bring some balance thank you for your kind attention today